Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Last week, we talked about the wall. And I hope that you'll take time to go back and listen to that talk if you missed it. But I hope that you're also processing your own responses to the wall in times of solitude and silence with Jesus, processing it with those close to you. And in many ways, I feel like this week's talk is an accompanying message. We've discussed throughout this series how Jeremiah was a failure from just about every worldly measure. He's given one message to give to his people, repent, avoid disaster, and he can't get them to hear it. Look at what it says in Jeremiah 25, verse 3. Jeremiah says, For 23 years, from the 13th year of King Josiah, son of Ammon of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. 23 years of beating your head against the wall. For 23 years, from the very first moment back in Jeremiah 1, that Jeremiah saw the boiling pot tilted from the north, he was warned to the people, if you do not turn from your idolatrous ways and stop worshiping handmade gods, if you do not become a people of justice, taking care of the poor, the outcast, the orphan, and the widow in your midst, God will enact judgment on Jerusalem through the nation of Babylon. Also throughout the Bible, Babylon is called the Chaldeans. And King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, will lead his armies into Jerusalem and they will lay waste to the city. Now, just for a little historical context. In 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar rises to power. The Babylonians unseat the Assyrians who had been the dominant force in the region. Now, the Assyrians were the ones who had taken out the northern kingdom. In 722 BC, the Assyrians had marched on what was then called the northern kingdom of Israel. You see, following the death of Solomon, the the people of God split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judea. Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom, while Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. But the Assyrians had wiped out the northern kingdom for all intents and purposes. Now the Babylonians have unseated the Assyrians. Now King Nebuchadnezzar turns his sights on Jerusalem. Now within Jerusalem, in the kingdom of Judea, there are differing foreign policy opinions. Some of the advisors to the kings uh, suggest a military alliance with Egypt paying tribute to Pharaoh so that Pharaoh will protect them. It's kind of like if you had a school bully and they were picking on you, you'd try to go find some other tough person uh, to defend you. And this is kind of one opinion that they've levied. Now, some suggest a riskier plan, saying that God would not possibly judge Jerusalem. They have the temple of the Lord, as we saw in Jeremiah 7. Therefore, the people should simply fight and trust in God's help. Jeremiah on the other hand, has a different perspective. You see, he's given the perspective of God himself. And Jeremiah continually tells the people that the threat of the Babylonians is because, not because just simply because the Babylonians are big and strong, but it's because of the wicked ways within the kingdom of Judea in the streets of Jerusalem. 
And while, yes, normally to trust in God is a very good thing, you can't live wickedly with your life and in your heart and then with your mouth say, God, I trust you. In 597, King Nebuchadnezzar launches a military assault on Jerusalem, subduing it, but he doesn't destroy the city. Instead, after he has defeated the city, he hauls off King Jeconiah, King Jeconiah's officials, and several of the skilled laborers, blacksmiths, and artisans, presumably so Jerusalem cannot make weapons. They think that God's displeasure over the king and the ruling class has been proven out because they were the ones that were hauled off and dispersed throughout the Babylonian Empire. But in Jeremiah chapter 24, Jeremiah is given a vision of two baskets of figs, one full of good figs that look great to eat and another full of rotten, stinking figs that are just about to be thrown out. And God tells Jeremiah plainly in Jeremiah 24, he says, listen, everybody thinks the bad figs are the lot that got sent off into exile. But the truth is, those are the good figs. Those are the true remnant, the ones that I'm going to restore the land through. But the ones who are left behind, those are the ones who will endure the full force of judgment. And though it took another 10 years until 587 BC, for Jeremiah's words to be proven right, the Babylonian armies in that year swept through Jerusalem, leaving unspeakable destruction and suffering. And as far as the biblical witness goes, you ha- we have the book of Lamentations, as Jeremiah, historically, reflects upon the destruction of Jerusalem, weeping over what's been done to the city. And through it all, Through all of these yet 23 years, Jeremiah has persisted. And even though there are no signs of change, no signs of improvement or success, Jeremiah speaks the word of the Lord to the people. And this 23-year mark, it turns out, would be somewhat of the midway point of Jeremiah's vocation and service to the Lord as a prophet. Jeremiah would end up spending the better part of 50 years as a prophet, like Father McKenzie of Beatles fame writing the words to sermons that no one would in effect hear. Now what gives one the staying power, the ability to keep showing up in spite of all evidence to the contrary, to keep hoping, to keep suffering? How does Jeremiah, through all of the apparent failure in his life, show us a life that is filled with success and meaning, much less how does Jeremiah keep a soft heart? What well, do you think, like, Jeremiah has been tasked with talking to these people and proclaiming the word of the Lord and enacting it with his life, and they reject him constantly. How does he keep turning towards the people? What is it that's driving him? I've been listening to a lot of old records lately, uh, which, which is a very weird thing to say. And, and one of the albums I've found myself rediscovering has been John Mayer's Heavier Things. And it's so weird to think that that album came out nearly 20 years ago, which also means that I graduated high school nearly 20 years ago. And one of the songs on that album that still holds up pretty well is a song called Something's Missing. Mayer sounds much like Kohelet from Ecclesiastes as he sings, Something's missing, and I don't know how to fix it. Something's missing, and I don't know what it is at all. Now, it's one of the most tried and true cliches in all of culture, and especially in our American culture. The person who gets everything they think they want still feels this gnawing sense of emptiness or lack of fulfillment. 
The Midas life, as we all know, in our minds at least, is fool's gold. And yet, still our culture pursues wealth and notoriety and the world's definitions of success, exhausting ourselves, demanding of ourselves, comparing ourselves to others. And the question, I think, as we sort of survey these two approaches to life, and we look at Jeremiah's life, and I think the question that Jeremiah's life is asking of us is this, What are we willing to fail at in order to succeed in serving God? Jeremiah became a pariah amongst many of the people of his day. As we look at it the last week, he says he's called Mr. Death and Destruction. His message is so known by the people to be one of doom and gloom that they just kind of turn their heads when he comes. They're like, oh, here comes Jeremiah again with all his cheery words for us. Jeremiah is ignored, he's undermined, he suffers physically, he's thrown in prison, he's thrown into a well, he's put in stocks, and yet, through it all, Jeremiah remains faithful. And he's faithful not just to God, but he doesn't retreat. He doesn't say to the people, you know what, I tried to tell you, you're all going to die, I'll be over here watching when it happens. No, he he says to them, he keeps coming to them. And, and what's worse, when they are visited with their fate that Jeremiah told them would happen, Jeremiah is right there in the middle of it. What happens to the people he was trying to warn happens to Jeremiah. And I think about Jeremiah's life, and I think about what it means to live with a singular devotion to God. This past Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, marking the beginning of the season of Lent. Part of the purpose of Lent is to simplify our lives, stripping away desires that many in and of themselves are not bad things, but letting those fall to the side for a season in a singular pursuit of devotion to Jesus. Psalm 27 verse 4 says, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. Psalm 63, verse 1, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. And Jesus, in his life, as he walks the earth, embodies this single-minded devotion. John 5, verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son does also. Matthew 16, verses 21 through 27 says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now this exchange between Jesus and Peter, as Jesus is explaining to his disciples, trying to give them a little insight into what's to come, may strike us as a bit harsh. But what we see here is the level to which Jesus is completely immersed in his vocation, which springs out of the life that he shares with God. 
For Peter, the notion that Jesus would be killed is the epitome of failure. And his indignation is clear. He says, Jesus, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus rebukes him and says it plainly. Peter, you're looking at this from a human point of view, but I am telling you from the vantage point of God. Jesus' life is a harmony of intimacy with the Father that results in a single-mindedness of mission. An excellent life, as Jesus shows us, is a life that is singularly devoted to God. And at the same time, because God is the one who so loves the world, because God is the one who empties himself again and again and never finding the bottom because God is endless abundance, as we have a single-minded devotion to God, we at the same time are wholly given to the world. Jesus is willing to fail the expectations of those around him, He falls short of giving them what they think they want, what they think they need, in order to succeed at revealing the love of God fully and finally. So, the question I think for us today, where are we willing to fail, even in the eyes of others, in order to please God? Now hear me on this. I am not saying that everything that looks like a failure is some act of hidden faithfulness, No, sometimes we're just incompetent or inexperienced or we have lessons to learn. Nor am I saying the opposite, that everything that has the appearance of success is secretly some sort of vapid vanity project. But in our lives, individually and as a church, there will be things that try to present themselves as success. And what I'm saying is that I... For, for myself, for my life, for our family, for our church, I want the God-defined vision of success. I want the run with the horse's pace. So how do we do this? Well, the same way that Jeremiah did, and that Jesus not only did, but empowers us to do. We walk with the Spirit of God. We stay close to God's heart. Each morning, Jeremiah would rise to be with God. His prophetic vocation, the words that he spoke to the people that wouldn't listen, the actions that he took, all flowed not out of some twisted sense of duty, but a love. A love that Jeremiah was awash in every morning. A love that Jeremiah described as being so strong, it was like a burning in his bones. And Jeremiah, throughout his life, would see pain, not only individually, but corporately especially as the words that he warned the people with, especially as the events of 587 unfolded and the streets of Jerusalem were filled with the Babylonian armies. Jeremiah, in the midst of this, because of his life with God, could look in the midst of this national tragedy, in the midst of seeing his world crumbling around him. In Lamentations chapter 3, it says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. To the soul that seeks Him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for one to bear the yoke in youth, to sit alone in silence when the Lord has imposed it, to put one's mouth to the dust. There may yet be hope. Jeremiah is seeing the world crumbling around him. But he remains steadfast. Not because he's denying reality. If you read Lamentations, you see very clearly that Jeremiah is very clear on what's happening. And and very honest about what's going on. 
but because of his life with God. He can have this sense of a steadfastness that underrides everything. Jesus is noted throughout the Gospels as getting up early to pray, staying up all night to pray. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 30, the Father and I are one. And Jesus then, out of this oneness with the Father through the Spirit, invites us into the very heartbeat of His life with the Father. John 15, verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And as we begin this Lenten season, this journey with Jeremiah and Jesus towards Jerusalem, I think God is inviting us to ponder this question, what do we want more than anything else? It's just another way of asking whose vision of success matters to us. And I want to urge you towards a new closeness with God. And yes, that will usually involve fasting, stripping away something, even good things, for a time. A constant struggle with our desires for comfort, for our desires for distraction. But the point of Lent, as the point of the walk with Jesus, is not the discipline of achievement or giving something up for Lent. The point is the love of the Father. To find ourselves immersed in His love anew. And out of that love, out of that closeness, God gives us a mission. We are a sent people, sent into the world to proclaim through the word and deed the incredible gospel of Jesus Christ. Just as Jeremiah would get up every morning and then go to the city gates and proclaim the word that had been shown to him, so we are to be a people who through our life with God are bursting out of it and sharing and showing the good news of Jesus. John 17, verse 18, As you have sent me, Jesus says, into the world, so I have sent them, meaning the disciples, meaning those apprentices to Jesus who follow in his way. Jesus was willing to be a failure on the cross, not simply because he knew it would all work out in the end, that he'd be resurrected and happy, it it would, but because by becoming our failure, by becoming our sin, our curse, he would empower us to live the spirit-indwelled life that he has for us. His vision of success in overcoming through suffering love means life for the entire world. And he invites us not only to share in his life, but to share in his sufferings. Because through suffering for God, we proclaim the love of God that is stronger than any failure. We succeed. Psychologist Diane Langberg says, You can do right and still have everything turn out wrong. I'm I'm not certain where we got the idea that this was not so, given the one that we follow and call God did do everything right and ended up treated with gross injustice. Ecclesia, let us be a people who are willing to fail by living the Jesus way. Let us be a people who not only know that justice is something that everybody deserves, who not just take to tweeting and talking about it on social media that everybody should have justice, but are drawn into the struggles of people's daily lives for equity, for God-ordained justice. Ecclesia, let us be willing to fail by telling the story, however winsomely, to people that don't know themselves as loved by Jesus. Let us be willing to put our faith not in our ability to articulate Jesus and what he's done, but in the power of the gospel story. Let's be willing to be failures. Ecclesia, it's possible as we're talking about failure that you don't know what you're failing at at all. You just feel like a failure. 
And worse yet, you feel like a failure in the eyes of God. Can I just say this to you plainly? There is nothing that you have done. There is nothing that's been done to you that could ever separate you from God's love in Christ Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross and in the resurrection, He has become our failure. And by becoming our failure, has overcome our failure. When we see Jesus on the cross, we see the love of God in this incredible mystery and paradox, taking on our sin, our shame, but not being defeated by it. Though, on that Friday, as we move towards Easter, it did seem like Jesus was beaten. And so friends, wherever you find yourself, hear me plainly. You are not a failure in God's eyes. You are not so far gone that you cannot be brought back home. Let that wash over you today. And as we talk about what we're willing to fail as, we talk about what it means to live with the vision of a life of excellence that's willing to put aside some other things, we look at the life of Jeremiah. For 50 years, Jeremiah preached with a fire in his bones to a stubborn people. Every day he showed up at the city gates saying to them, turn from your ways, and every day they ignored him. And God demonstrates His faithfulness to us in the life of Jesus as He draws near to us patiently, as He cares for us, sustaining the very air that we breathe, as He sanctifies us, as He forgives us in our weakness. God's vision of success, let that be our sole pursuit. The one thing needful, let us embark upon this Lenten season with that as our vision and our guide. Ecclesia, what are we willing to fail at? Well, that answer will be different depending on which one of us you ask, but I hope the answer to this question, what do we want to be known for? What do we want to succeed at? Will be the same amongst all of us, that we want to pursue Jesus. We want to find ourselves known and rested in His love and out of that love to love and serve and give ourselves on behalf of the world. What are we willing to fail at? Let us be known as failures for Jesus, so that we can succeed at the one thing required. Grace and peace to you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.